The scripture reading this morning is from Mark 11, 1 through 11. You can follow along in your bulletin or in your Bible. And it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Abby. Um, Would you bow uh, in prayer with me as we prepare to open the word of God? Father, um, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit uh, this morning to teach us, to give us eyes that we might see and ears that we might hear what you have to say to us this morning and all to the end that we might uh, worship Jesus. And it is in his name we pray, amen. So this morning we come to a familiar passage of scripture. Uh, These events are also recorded in the book of Matthew, Luke, and John. And they're a little bit different in each one of those books because the authors have a little bit of a different emphasis because they're writing to a different audience. And Mark's simple version of the story is that he and his disciples are traveling down the road to Jerusalem. And sort of out of the blue, he says... You know, up ahead, there's a, a donkey, a, a colt that's never been ridden. And I want you guys, two of you, to go up there, get the donkey, and bring him back. So they go ahead. They go to the village. Sure enough, there's the little colt. They untie it. They have instructions about what to say to the owner if the owner objects. The owner objects. They counter his objection. They get the donkey, and they bring it back to Jesus, and he gets on the donkey, and he rides into town to the cheers of the crowd. And we wonder, why is this story in the Bible? Well, the first reason it's in the Bible is because it happened. It happened. People like us 2,000 years ago witnessed these very events. But to my mind, the more important question is this. Why did this story have to be in the Bible? Why would the Bible have been, in a sense, incomplete 
if this story had not been in it. And so as we unpack the story this morning, we're going to look at three things as we begin. We're going to look at the prophecy, the pony, and the unexpected king. Long before the birth of Jesus, God spoke to his people through prophets, men chosen by God to speak the will of God and the word of God to God's people. And for the most part, they were very, very unpopular people because they kept telling people things that they didn't want to hear, like repent of your sins and return to God. And while the call to repentance and the promise of restoration was a a feature in every prophet's message, every now and then, the prophet would say something that he saw about a distant event in the future. God allowed his prophets to see things that were a ways off, and that's why they were called seers. And these predictions that they made about the future were called prophecy. And as we look at the prophecies this morning, I think it's really important for us to remember that there is a cardinal rule that we must follow when looking at prophecy, and that is this. The Apostle Peter reminds us that there is one key principle to interpreting any prophecy, and that is prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God, acting by and through the Holy Spirit, enabled prophets to see future events in history, in the history of redemption. And the reason this story had to be in the Bible is because it represents the fulfillment of a centuries-old prophecy. Roughly 500 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah foretold of a day when the people of Jerusalem would shout and rejoice greatly. And through Zechariah's royal prophecy, he said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and with having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. This prophecy is so unusual and so unexpected because that is never the way that ancient kings entered the city, announced their presence. It'd be like the President of the United States flying in on a Cessna 150 or driving into town on a solar-powered Prius. That just is not going to happen. And it didn't happen back then. When the ancient kings entered the city, they did it with pomp and circumstances, with pride, and, and something impressive. They might ride in on a, uh, a regal stallion or a war horse or be drawn in by a horse-drawn chariot, or they might even be carried in in a booth with throngs of servants carrying them. But one thing for sure, the way they entered the town said something. It said Somebody important has just arrived. Somebody special has just arrived. Look at me. Look at me. The one thing a king would not have done in that day to announce his coming would be to get on and ride in 
onto what our eyes might look at as a little pony. Talk about projecting weakness. Can you imagine it? A grown man riding on a little pony. It's almost comical. You can almost imagine some kid in the crowd singing, Jesus, Jesus came to town a-riding on a pony. But we should never mistake Jesus' humbleness and his meekness for weakness. Pride is everywhere in our culture. Just get on any social media platform, and it's like a human highlight reel. It's everywhere. It's what we've come to expect, sadly, from our leaders. Pride is self, self-seeking, self-promoting, self-righteous, puffed up, and boastful. It's about getting your 15 minutes of fame. Pride is seeing yourself as better than others. The Bible sets forth a countercultural approach to life. It says, we want something that's going to distinguish us, to set us apart from the crowd. We want to stand out. We want to make a name for ourselves. And the Bible says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And again, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Humility is the opposite of pride. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking less about yourself and more about others. Humility is the ability to value others above yourself. As the psalmist said, though the Lord is great, yet he cares for the humble. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. The Jews expected that their Christ, their Messiah, would be a proud and powerful military king, perhaps in the mold of King David. But Zechariah tells the people, no, no, no. The Messiah is not a king who will save you from your Roman oppressors. The Messiah that you should look for is an unexpected king. He's a king unlike any other. His rule and reign will know no borders. His rule will be from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth, even to Winter Park, Florida. Zechariah says, you will recognize your true king because he will come humbly. He will come to you in an unexpected way. But before we move on, there's something, I think, that's a little bit miraculous that's occurring in this story, but we tend to miss it because we haven't seen enough Westerns. Baby boomers were raised on Westerns, whether it shows like Rawhide or, or Westerns with John Wayne. And for our purposes, the importance of Westerns is that at some point, there's a picture of somebody trying to break a horse or, or ride a horse that's never been ridden before. And it's usually pretty funny. It's usually some guy hanging on for dear life while the horse tries to buck him off. And whether it's a horse or a donkey that's never been ridden, both animals have one thing in common. 
they do not want you to ride them. And they will resist you riding them violently. This week, I spoke with a friend who owns both donkeys and horses to find out a little bit more doing some sermon prep. And I said, tell me about this. And she said this, donkeys are stronger and more volatile than horses. So unless donkeys are broken right and broken well, they can be lethal. You can bet that if Jesus had gotten bucked off by this donkey, that would have been in the Bible. <laughs> Jesus gets bucked off by a burrow. But no. Jesus gets on an untrained, unridden, unbroken donkey, and he just rides into town. And to me, this reminds me of another story in the Bible. It took place with Jesus and the disciples, and they were out on this great lake. Big body of water, it's nighttime, and this giant storm whips up. And the disciples are terrified. They're terrified, and they, they can't believe that Jesus is asleep, sleeping through this. So they shake him, and they wake him up, and they say, Master, Master, we're all going to drown. And he turns to them, and he says, Why are you so worried? And he goes basically to the storm, shh, and everything is calm. And these disciples look at each other in amazement, and they say, who is this guy? Who is this guy that even the winds and the waves obey him? Well, he's the same one who said, every animal of the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. Even this little donkey. The donkey submits to his true master. What we see is the Lord of the great storm is also the Lord of the little burrow. And we should never mistake Jesus' humility and meekness for his weakness. So Jesus rides into town and there's a bunch of people there, and they're crying out, Hosanna, which is a word that we sing in church, but we really don't know what it means. And it means save, or, or God saves, back in the Hebrew. God save us. And, and uh, the question I had as I was preparing for this was, did they really recognize that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise in Zechariah that the king was going to come? Did they really know that? Well, it's really hard to, know, hard to know what they knew and when they knew it. But one thing we do know for sure, Scripture says the disciples didn't have a clue what was going on. They had no idea what was going on when he gets on this donkey and rides into town. And so when it comes to the messianic puzzle and putting the pieces of the gather, together, what we see for the disciples who walked with Jesus for years is it took them time. It took them a lot of time, in some cases weeks, months, and even years of looking back and pouring over the scriptures to see just how the pieces of the messianic puzzle fit together in Jesus Christ. So why the Hosanna? Well, Jesus was well known in those parts. He had become popular with the people. 
He was a miracle worker. They had seen him do miracles. They had seen him teach uh, with authority. And so we don't know for sure, but it's possible that they were honoring him as a godly teacher, a miracle worker, and leader. But it's also possible that they may have aspirations to make him king by force, like we saw in John chapter 6. After all, who wouldn't want a king that can feed 5,000 people, heal the blind, and raise the dead? Free health care and free food, it's always been popular. Well, Soren Kierkegaard said that life is lived looking forward and understood looking backwards. The people of that day would have struggled to put all the pieces of the messianic puzzle together in advance. It's only with the scriptures, the finished word of God, and the illumination of the Holy Spirit that allows us to look into the pages of scripture and see how all of the pieces of the messianic puzzle come together in Jesus Christ. And one more thing that I found remarkable. As they're walking down the road, Jesus sees up ahead of him this little burrow. He sees that the owner is going to object. He knows what the owner needs to hear to let the disciples borrow the burrow. These are three things that no one would have been able to, to, to anticipate. Three things that unless you are a prophet or God himself, that no one would know. And so what Zechariah didn't know, because it had not been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, was that the Messiah would not only be the true king, but he would be the true prophet. He would be a seer. What the story that we've been looking at in Mark does is it tells us what Jesus did. But it does not begin to answer the question, why did he do it? Why did he go to Jerusalem? And why at this time? And to answer that question, we have to have some background information, which we find in Mark chapter 10. In Mark 10, before the burrow episode, Jesus and his disciples are walking down the road. And imagine you're there with him, and he turns to you, and he says, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. And you're saying to yourself, what the heck is this dude talking about? You don't know what he's saying. The only thing that seems to make sense to you is that he seems to be predicting that by going to Jerusalem, he's going to be captured, tortured, and killed. Now, if you know that the people of a certain town that you're heading to have plans to capture, torture, and kill you, you don't go to that town. You run away from that town as fast as you can. And yet Jesus goes on knowing what's in store with him. So why did he do it? Why did he go? This morning we've been looking at the first half of the Messianic prophecy 
the first half of the messianic puzzle from the prophet Zechariah, rather. But there's a lot more. There's a lot more. And more than a humble king, a submissive donkey, and a cheering crowd. And I'd like to just draw your attention, and you can look there now, or you can look there after the service, or you can look in your bulletin because it's there. In the second half of Zechariah's cryptic prophecy, the unexpected king speaks. He speaks, and this is what he says. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. In the final section of Zechariah's royal prophecy, we see three things. We see a divine deliverance, we see a divine invitation, and we see a divine promise. The prophet is speaking on behalf of the king who says to the people, you, you who are prisoners in a waterless pit, He's describing a deep pit without a single drop to quench their burning thirst. A pit of despair, a pit of distress, a pit of desolation, a pit where, humanly speaking, there is no hope for escape. Yet somehow, the prisoners in that pit of hopelessness are liberated by the divine deliverance. And this deliverance comes in a new and completely unexpected way. The unexpected king says, you do not free yourself. You cannot free yourself. But only because of the blood of my covenant with you can you be set free. In that day, the liberation that the Jews celebrated with Passover contemplated the priests interceding before God on behalf of the people with the blood of lambs shed for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. As the scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So one week after Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he tells his disciples, as he tells us today, how he intends to execute this divine deliverance. You remember? On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks for it, he gave it to his disciples, saying to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink you all of it. Through the new covenant, in his blood, Jesus delivers his people, not from Egypt or Rome, but from their real enemy, sin and death. At the cross, we finally see the pieces coming together. Jesus is not only the true king who dies for his people. He's not just a, pr a prophet who sees what's in store for him in Jerusalem and keeps going, but he is the true and final high priest who intercedes before God on behalf of his people, not with the blood of lambs, but with his own precious blood. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And our prophet, priest, and king comes proclaiming 
freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. When the unexpected king delivers you, he delivers you forever. As Jesus himself said, when the sun, if the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed. So why did he do it? Why did he go to Jerusalem? Well, of course he did it for you. And he did it for me. And he did it for everyone, without exception, no matter what they've done or where, the, where they've gone, for everyone who with the psalmist would cry out, out of my distress, I called on the name of the Lord, and the Lord answered me, and he set me free. And next Sunday, the followers of this humble king will celebrate a new and better covenant and a new and final Passover. And the name we give to this final Passover is Easter. So, we've looked at the divine deliverance. Let's look at the divine invitation. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. By the blood of the covenant, those who are once hopeless prisoners are transformed to become prisoners of hope. Now that is a divine deliverance. In this world, we hope in many things. And sadly, tragically, for many of us, we are prisoners of our misplaced hopes. We are trusting false hopes to rescue us when they can never do that because they can never survive the grave. We hope in our appearance, we hope in our money, we hope in our careers, we hope in our intellect, we hope that something will give us some measure of value and worth and security in this world, and they will not. Everything we hope in will ultimately disappoint. As followers of Christ, we have a new hope. We have a new deliverer and a new hope. And it's in our unexpected king, the great king who loved us and gave himself up for us. And as we will sing at the end of the service, for all those who follow Christ, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground, all other ground is sinking sand. And so finally we get to the divine promise. The humble king says, I'm going to restore you double. <laughs> and so some of us are going, I can't wait, you know. But he's not talking about, you know, health, wealth, or prosperity. He's not talking about a 200% return on your investment. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. You will have twice as much joy as you ever had sorrow when the soul has been delivered from the pit it is but a foretaste of the unmeasurable joys of heaven, where there is no more death, where there is no more sorrow or pain, where everything sad will come untrue and be sweeter for once having been so sad. So, like all prophets before him, Jesus comes and he preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and 
I don't know about you, but my sinful nature, my sinful tendency is to resist the call to repentance like an unridden donkey resists a rider. I tend to buck. I don't want any of it. But the call to repentance has never been popular. But today, maybe even more unpopular because in our secular age, the idea of repentance is almost the same connotation as a dirty word. Like, like, who are you to judge me? Like, who are you to impose your antiquated superstitions, your choice-restrictive religion on me? To secular ears, the word repentance smacks of judgment and law and witch hunt. But for those with ears to hear, it is the most beautiful message you could ever hear. In the divine invitation where he says, return to your fortress, he's saying, your heart has wandered away from me. You have placed yourself in the arms of other lovers. You are a prisoner in the pit of your misplaced hopes, trusting false hopes with no power to rescue you. But I still want you. Return to me. Won't you return to me? In those days, the fortress was a stronghold, a place of refuge, safety, protection, a shield against harm. The psalmist wrote, the Lord is my refuge and my fortress, my God whom I trust. And again, God is my salvation. He is my fortress. And finally, in 2 Samuel, the Lord is my fortress and my deliverer. To the ancient Hebrews, the call to return to your fortress, they would have understood and they would have interpreted as a call to repentance, a call to turn from where they were going and the direction of their life and return back to their fortress. As the song says, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Well, Charles, Charles Spurgeon died in 1892, and, um, but he understood what it meant to be woke. He did understand what it meant to be woke, but he understood it in a way that's different than we understand it today. Spurgeon asked this, he says, was there ever a time when you suddenly woke up? When you suddenly woke up to find that all your fancied goodness had vanished, that all your hopes had perished, and that you found yourself in a comfortless condition as men without a drop to drink. A time when you saw that all you had done was stained by sin, that your heart was not right with God. In a crowd this size, there's no telling, you know, where everybody's coming from. But if you're here today and you've never found yourself responding to the divine invitation to return to your fortress, if you're clinging to your misplaced hopes, trusting hopes that are false with no power to deliver you, hear the words from the unexpected king and savior contained in the old hymn, which says, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me, Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. This coming week,
as followers of Christ, prepare our hearts to celebrate the divine deliverance we call Easter. Let us each take stock of our lives. Let us re-examine our hopes. Have our hearts drifted away from God? Are we trusting things that cannot possibly shield us from harm or deliver us? Let us then heed the word of the prophet Zechariah and return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Let's pray. So, Father, uh, what, a, what a story. Uh, it's a lot to take in, and that's why we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here to teach us and to give us eyes that might see and ears that might hear, that we might learn and that we might return to our fortress as prisoners of hope. Father, save us, deliver us from misplaced hopes, from false hopes that can never rescue us. And let us remember that while you came once meek and lowly on a donkey, the next time you come, you will come in glory, riding a regal white stallion. And you come for your people, and we thank you for that, Lord. But I pray for each one here that has never responded to the divine invitation that they would come. In Jesus' name, amen.